Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. For 20 years, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has added funny to NPR's reputation as an earnest, always serious news network. There will be guaranteed laughs when host Peter Sagal and panelists pull into Savannah this Thursday for a live taping of the show at the Savannah Civic Center. But in the great not-my-job tradition, we want to talk with Peter about another facet of his endurance— a dedicated and really good runner and author of The Incomplete Book of Running. Peter Sagal, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm talking to you from Chicago, where the program is based. Were you running, by the way, in last week's Polar Vortex? I, You know, I did not, and I feel somewhat embarrassed because, of course, uh, other than talking about our times, the thing that runners like to brag about most is how miserable it was the last time we went running. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's like it's unbearable, but we do it to you anyway. Sadly, uh, I cannot do it in good faith because all last week I was completely out with a cold. It was conveniently timed, but uh, I did not go running in minus 20 degree weather. Although I have in the past. I'd be happy to tell you about that at great and You know, that's life. okay, Peter. We've <laughs> oh, no, really? No, anyway, so let me tell you. So you go out and the first thing you lose sensation in your fingertips, but that's... You get the picture. I get the picture. So your book, uh, The Incomplete Book of Running, it's a play on The Complete Book of Running, which some listeners may remember. Jim Fix's book, this was published in 1977. What did that book mean to you? Oh, it meant everything. Um, And that's, well, exactly why I decided to pitch my book both as an homage and a little bit of a satire. The Complete Book of Running came out in the late 70s. and, And and it's hard to say whether it was the fuel that caused the great 70s running boom or or just sort of the book that went along with it. It's hard to think of a modern equivalent, except maybe one of those diet books that come and go. But Jim Fix's book was far more, um, I think, influential than anything I can think of today. And the way I like to put it is, prior to Jim Fix writing this book, and he was a convert to running, as he liked to say he had been an overweight smoker three packs a day who found running and it totally transformed his life and he had the intensity of a convert. Prior to him, no one thought of running for its own sake. The only people who ran uh, outside were either like people who were trying to win running races, you know, sprinters or 10,000 mm-hmm. meter runners, or people who were training for other sports like boxing, doing road work. The idea of just running for its own sake was entirely new. And Jim Fix wrote about it and told everybody that it would change your life. It would, you'd lose weight and improve your mood and your sex life and you'd eat better. And it just would make everything so much better. And people believed it. And uh, thanks to him, millions of people started running and we're all still doing it today. So I decided to come along and and sort of add my own little contribution to the genre. And you, did running change your life? You were yourself an overweight teenage kid. I was. And and, uh, that's, I went through sort of two transformations, uh, all both related to running. One, as you indicate, was back when I was a teenager, way back when the Fix book came out. And yeah, I was a pudgy little bookish kid. I'm sure that would be surprising to anyone who knew that I eventually went out into public radio. Um, But... I I used to read that Jim Fix book, and it told me that it would change my life and make all of my dreams come true. I mean, in the book, there are these wonderful illustrations of of very happy, slender people, and all I wanted to do was be one of them, as opposed to the short and pudgy, bepimpled person that I was. 
And so I started running finally at the age of 15. And uh, although I didn't become one of those slender black and white photographs, I became, I think, a better version of myself. Um, Then later in life, and this is what really my book is about, uh, I had a second and more significant transformation and sort of a classic midlife crisis. I went from uh, a beleaguered uh, suburban dad, uh, again, approaching way too much overweight, to uh, a fairly accomplished uh, midlife marathoner and uh, have run quite literally all over the world. Well, and this is a part of Peter Sagal that I don't think listeners understand. Uh, if they're just listening to you as a host, you went through a really painful divorce and really troubling times, some depression. I'm wondering if the tools that you cultivated for distance running were at all helpful for combating these other emotional well, aspects. Th- they were. And what's funny is, is that, you know, I don't want to present myself out there as a self-help guru who managed to figure it all out or, or, or even now would presume to tell people, well, this is all you need to do to get through trouble. What happened to me was that I had invested all this time and effort into becoming a, a fairly decent uh, runner. And then, all the, and then my troubles truly began. One of the things I write about in the book is that, you know, you acquire a skill of long distance running and as, you know, as nice as it is to have some medals from races, it's pretty pointless. I mean, nobody needs to run in modern America, except maybe if you're missing a bus. And I always wondered, well, what good is this? Well, I kind of found out when I ended up going through, like you indicate, a bunch of difficulties I didn't anticipate. Because it turns out that the skills you learn to get through, say, a marathon or a very cold day in Chicago when you're supposed to run 10 miles or anything like that actually are transferable to other difficult situations. And I think looking back, I'm not sure I would have gotten through it even as well as I did without that particular kind of training. Hmm, pointless and painful. I mean, yes, what, exactly. is it, what is it that keeps you going? What, what keeps you doing a marathon when you're just shattered after? It's something that I've thought of a lot in different ways. Once I came back from a marathon, and if you've ever met anybody who's just run a marathon, you know what I was looking like. I was staggering up my stairs, trying not to stress my delicate legs. And my then wife said to me, why do you do it if, you're, if it hurts so much? And, and I said, well, isn't that the point? <laughs> Uh, and, I, and I meant it. And, and I think for some people, that's still true. Uh, for a lot of people, I won't go so far as to say everybody because it's just not true. For a lot of people, life is in some ways too simple. It's too easy to, you know, get food. It's too easy to get from place to place. And sometimes we feel like we need some difficulty just so we can feel alive, you know. But ultimately, I sort of graduated to a different view of the whole thing, which is that it's not so much about, you know, signing up for something that will hurt but for trying to learn to prepare for something difficult, like a marathon, in such a way so that when you finally get to it, it doesn't hurt. My guest is Peter Sagal. He's host of NPR's weekly news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And the show is going to be live in Savannah at the Civic Center this coming Thursday. We're also talking about his book, The Incomplete Book of Running. There is, Peter, an amazing story in this book. There are many fantastic stories, but one in particular that stuck out for me you have qualified for and run 14 marathons, including four Boston marathons. And there's one in the book. You were the sighted runner accompanying William Greer, a blind man, yes. as he ran the Boston Marathon. This is 2013, significant yes. year. He was just getting hammered by the hills approaching the 24-mile mark. Can you pick up that story from there? Sure. Well, if, if, I don't know if anybody listening has run a marathon, but uh, it's hard. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And some days... 
it doesn't go well. It's, it's not like a game of tennis where you play one maybe three or four times a week. And No, this is something you train for for months, and then whatever happens that day happens, and sometimes it doesn't unfold as you wished. And, and William was definitely having one of those days. Uh, things were just breaking down, uh, all kinds of cramps, muscular and otherwise. Boston is a, is a tough race. It's famous for its hills toward the end. Uh, but it's also tough because people are so excited to run it and they go out too fast and they pay the price later. That's where William was. And as we were approaching the last mile or so, he kept stopping to walk. Again, that happens. There's no shame in it. But I said to William, you know, the last mile or half mile really of the Boston Marathon is the most famous stretch in modern running. It's, it's, it's hallowed among running circles. Right on Hereford, left on Boylston, into the downtown canyon of the finishing chute. You run that last quarter mile, cheering people. And I said, William, you, you really have to try to run that. You can't be walking when you go through that, you know, famous, famous stretch. And he at first didn't think he could do it. He was that bad, he was in that bad of a shape. But much to my surprise, and his own, I think, he picked it up. He actually started running from a near stop and ended up running that last, that last stretch of, of roadway in, in extraordinarily good form and spirit, his head held high, um, and it was amazing. I was so incredibly proud of him when we crossed the line that he had pulled that off. And, and I don't know what he proved to anybody, but he made me feel really proud and he felt great about himself. And we were still standing there just on the other side of the finish line when the bombs went off just a little bit behind us. Mm. It took us a long time to figure out what had happened. We didn't have our phones. We just knew something terrible had happened. We weren't able to see the blood and destruction. But it was really later when I was able to put the time frame together that I realized that because he had run that last mile or so, as opposed to walking it like he wanted to, we had gotten past the bombing before it happened. And if he hadn't done that, who knows where we would have been, walking up to it, held behind, who knows? But it ended up being probably the most important mile he'd ever run in his life, and mine too. Yeah, it's just an incredible story. And it saved his life. We talked about the metaphor maybe of running. (laughs) Has running saved yours? I think so. I mean, there's this moment uh, in the book. I was riding my bike one day, uh, training for a triathlon, and I was hit by a car. And there's this moment that I remember so vividly. Other people who've been through this can, can tell you the same thing where you know what's about to happen. The car is coming at you. You can't get out of the way. Time seems to slow down. And you have this realization that you're about to be a person who was hit by a car. You've heard about this. You know what happens. You never thought it would happen to you. And there's this astonishing moment of despair and realization that you're crossing over into a a timeline, if you will, that you never imagined would ever be something you'd have to deal with. The, the thing I compare it to is that great moment in uh, Toy Story when Woody says, I am a lost toy. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is something he knows about and has heard about the most terrible thing. And yet it's happening to him. The reason I say this all is because that's what happened to me. I never, ex- in, in terms of my personal life, I never expected that I would be a divorced guy with kids. Of course not. I would never make those mistakes. I would never be one of those unfortunate unwise people. I was far too sophisticated and aware for that, and yet it did happen. And the reason I bring this all up is because if it hadn't been for what I had learned, what I had de- the practice I had developed, what I call the practice of persistence, the kind of dogged patience that I developed as a runner, who knows if I ever would have gotten through that very unexpected left turn, as it were. Mm. Well, it is an incomplete guide uh, to running that you've written 
In fact, you point out that we don't need to buy expensive gear to start running, which is really messing with my setup of excuses. Uh, it's it's well, that's the thing, and you know, it's funny when I set out to write the book, I didn't expect that I would become as much of an advocate and an evangelist for running as I have, but I have, and I think that part of the reason why I'm such an evangelist for running these days is what you just mentioned. There's no uh, threshold. You don't need to take a class. You don't need to learn anything. You don't need expensive equipment. You don't need to buy something and install it in your basement. You just need to go outside and start moving. The benefits of exercise, the benefits of you know mo- movement, of simply being in your own body uh, as opposed to in your head or staring at a screen, they're all accessible to everyone. It's just waiting out there. Go outside. Start running. Run a block. There, you're a runner. Now keep doing it. Well, Simmer down, Peter. I mean... No, I'm sorry. I'm getting all excited. This is excited <laughs> as public radio ever gets, I guess. Actually, public radio does get really exciting on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And I have w- seen a live taping of Ooh, Nice segue. Congratulations. It's, You're you good know, at this. I gotta, I've got to bring this to a wrap. We're running out of time. <laughs> but tell me, if somebody has not ever seen the live show, what can they expect? Um, a lot of what you hear on the radio, but significantly dirtier. Um, <laughs> we never censor ourselves. We leave that to the editors later. So a lot of times we go on some very strange tangents, which I'm told are quite delightful uh, and or shocking and or delightfully shocking. But basically, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is just an event where we get a lot of really interesting, fun people together and let them do what they do best, which is be very, very rude about people more important than we are. People say to me when they hear the show, they say, you sound like you're having a good time. And I say, that's because we really are. Our live shows are basically just that good time times whatever, because we are all delighted to be there and with our audience. Well, Savannah is delighted to have you. Thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure, Virginia. Always great to talk to you. Wait, wait, don't tell me host Peter Sagel there. His new book is called The Incomplete Book of Running, and it's now available just about everywhere. Wait, wait, don't tell me we'll be live at the Savannah Civic Center this coming Thursday evening for more information or tickets to see the, let's say, saucier side of public radio. Go to gpb.org. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Grammy Awards are happening this weekend. While music's biggest stars are preparing to hit the red carpets and stage in L.A., friends and families are rooting for Georgia nominees. That includes music producer and songwriter David Harris, who worked with the R&B upstart, Her. She is nominated in five categories. Can you focus on me? Baby, can you focus That's her song, Focus. It's nominated for Best R&B Song, and so is her namesake album. And David Harris is a close collaborator joining me from New York. Hello, David. Hey, how are you? Well, just great. How are you? You feeling a little nervous? I am nervous. I'm just... You know, excited, nervous, I guess. Well, you should be. This album has really (laughs) made its mark. Five nominations for her, including the Biggie album of the year. We definitely want to talk about you. But how did you meet her? (laughs) Is it Gabriella or Gabriella Wilson who performs as her? Um, You know what? We're just going to say it's her right now. Okay. (laughs) And this is H period E period R. So explain that to me. Yes, that's correct. So um, that stands for Having Everything Revealed. 
And um, we came up with that just basically having a trying to approach the music very honest. Um, so having a, an emotional bareness in the music and concealing the identity because we wanted to be about the music first. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's kind of the concept behind her. I am every woman or I am every in person, you know, um, just being, uh, being as honest as she could in her music. Well, in reality, she's 21 years old, a multi-instrumentalist. Where did you guys start working together? So I actually interned for her management uh, years ago uh, when they first signed her. I've known her since she was like 12 or 13 when she first got signed. So we locked in the studio, started talking about her life at the time. And as she was transitioning into a young woman, what that was for her. Hmm. Um, And so that's what uh, her the album is all about or project is all about just her developing as a young lady going through relationships and life etc well what a reception for it but speaking of performance names you you care to bring us through david r swaggle swag david r swag silius harris i can't even say it david swag r silius harris oh sorry i'm so sorry i misspoke it's all good everyone does it no, so Arcelius is actually my real name as well. And um, for years, I'll give you a quick origin of it. Um, now, coming up, I sang with my brothers, A7. We had a gospel band, um, and we were doing some things, and all of our names started, had an A in it, and Arcelius was mine. So for years, I went by Arcelius. And when I went to college, you know, you want to kind of create your own, beat your own path. And so I was like, I just go by Dave. And uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a little bit of a downgrade as far as syllables are concerned. Exactly. Anyway. Uh, the older I got, the more I appreciated Arcelius. But at the time, I was like, uh, you know, that's just weird. I just go by Dave. And um, what happened was a young lady wrote me a letter, a secret admirer, and uh basically she was like your swagger when you walk across campus, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so me and some of my boys, uh, shout out to Avery Robinson, uh, we're trying to figure out, was trying to figure out uh, <laughs> who wrote this letter. And so as a joke, I just started going by D swag mm. on campus. And before swag became overpopulated, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where SWAT came from. And then when I start moving into more of a professional thing, I was like, no one is, it's going to be hard to Google just swag. So I brought, <laughs> <laughs> so I brought back Arcelius. <laughs> you're originally from Manchester, Georgia, right? That's correct. All right. So you went, when, when did you swagger onto the campus at LaGrange college and what did you study? <laughs> Uh, okay, so um, I studied uh, composition and creative music and technology, and that was back in, when was that, 2000, 2000 early 2000, something like that. <laughs> well, you, now, I mean, now this song is nominated for Best R&B Song and the Album. Uh, yes. And this contemporary R&B category, this started after the disco era of the 70s. You weren't even alive then, were you? No. Nah. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, all right. So trace back your little musical lineage for me. You said you were part of a gospel group, but who were the, yes, who were the R&B artists that you were listening to growing up? Oh, growing up, it was really the classics. Um, Sam Cooke, Al Green, Marvin Gaye. Um, and then just really, really a lot of, believe it or not, Christian contemporary music as well. 
and um, just gospel. I mean, our house was mostly filled with gospel music, being that we are uh, we grew up in the church, still very active in the church. Um, I don't know. I just have so many amazing musical influences, and then uh, we discovered uh, the American Dream, the Jackson Five story. And that was really like, whoa, what is this? You know. Uh, <laughs> so you so you got out of the church pews and into the into the clubs. Uh, nah, no, honestly, I never did get into the club scene like that. Believe it or not. <laughs> but how about the scene, the music, the R and B scene of today? How has it changed since those early days? I mean, I think it's weird. I think we're it's getting kind of back to that honesty of music and that feel good. Mm. Um, now the R&B is, is having a resurgence. Um, for a while, it kind of died out, and, and people kind of like pushed it to the back. And now is is taking a front seat in mainstream music again, which is nice to see. So so many artists who were influenced by you know the '90s era and the '80s era, and just good soul music are able to express themselves in that genre on a mainstream platform now. So it's exciting to see the resurgence of it. Is there any song in particular that you think of that, I don't know, when you were working with her on the record, thought, ah, that's the sound I'm going for. That's what I want to hear. Um, honestly, no. It start because it's really started with the songwriting and just her honesty. So I don't think at the time we were really focused on the production sound. It was more so of the songs, like how honest and how catchy can we make these songs so that anybody can relate to them? You know, even though it's your personal story, it's your diary, how do we write them in such an honest and, and um, simple way that, you know, the girl next door or the other girl next door or your mother or your sister or your brother could relate to the lyric and sing the melody. So it really started with the songs in the piano room and the production just kind of fell into pocket. Mm -hmm. you know, with that. So that was our process. And still um, pretty much our process today is is about the song, the song, the song. I want to play uh, This Is Could Have Been by her. Mm -hmm. Former President Barack Obama included that in his favorite songs of 2018. It features Bryson Tiller. Let's hear just a little. We don't dream about, don't think about what we could have been. No, I'm holding it in because I know so when you hear those songs, knowing that Barack Obama was walking around and so many other people <laughs> listening to it, you know, do you think what, what what was happening when the origin was there, when you were sitting there at the piano? It just like it's confirmation that our process, you know, of being honest and trying to find those universal uh, things paid off. You know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like we could have been, I'm sure everyone in life, whether in romance or friendship, you know, have that we could have been moment. And um, it's just one of those things like, wow, like it's, it's just confirmation and to see, you know, Barack, uh, not to see him, but to hear that he, you know, loved the song and included it on his list. It's like, wow, like who would have thought, you know, a kid from Manchester would be a part of something that touch, you know, so many lives on, you know, on on the mega stage. So it's exciting. Well, now Atlanta's Childish Gambino was nominated last year for the yeah. best R&B song. Bruno Mars won in the end. You are running in some pretty, pretty distinguished company. How does it feel for you? It's still settling in. I, I told someone the other day, it hasn't completely hit me yet. 
I think once I touch the carpet, it's going to get really real. Like every every step of the process has been a surreal moment. Uh, you know, getting the emails like, oh, what's the phonetic pronunciation of your name for the telecast? It's like, okay. So the Recording Academy said it is going to change how it recruits new voting members to diversify the mm-hmm. demographics. This was a move in response to a lack of gender diversity at the Grammys, certainly, especially in the R&B category. People of color mm-hmm. have been really well represented, but not, you know, as much in the background, in production. So are right. you looking at the list of the nominees for this year? What do you think? Has it made any real changes? I, I think it's making a stride in a positive way. Definitely um, is more diverse. I love to see more uh, minority women in the uh, production and songwriting categories. But um, there are more women and minority women in the uh, artist category. So that's really exciting to see. I think we just have to get involved and get active. And um, and that's something that I made uh, a declaration to myself to really get more involved with the academy. So I've been uh, making strides in that way as well and, and getting active, more active in the New York chapter. And just, you know, you, you have to be heard. And the only way you could be heard is, is to get involved. Well, David Harris, congratulations. Have a great time at the Grammys. Thank you. That is a music producer and composer, David Harris. He worked closely on the eponymous debut album by her, which is nominated for five Grammy Awards. The awards are airing this Sunday. Details at gpbnews.org. So now, David, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to make you choose one of your children and tell us which song we should close with. Uh, I love Changes. I think Changes is nice. Okay. Here's to Changes. I've been going through some changes. changes, changes. Been running out of maybe, maybe, maybe. Boy, I know you're losing patience. Losing patience with me. Sometimes I get fed up with all the games. Sometimes you all just act the same. We asked David Harris to stick around and add some songs to our Georgia playlists. Artists choose two songs written or performed by a Georgian, and they cannot nominate their own songs. Here are David's picks. Hello, my name is David Harris, professionally known as Swag Arcilius. I'm a producer, composer, and songwriter. I'm from Manchester, Georgia. And I attended LaGrange College in LaGrange, Georgia, uh, where I studied composition and creative music and technology. And here are my two picks for the Georgia playlist. My first song is by Otis Redding, Sitting by the Dock of the Bay. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll. I first heard this song, I believe I was in middle school and went to a um, museum of music in Georgia. And um, I heard the song and just felt the emotion behind it and uh, really got into Otis as an artist. And that song just still resonates with me, the mood, the vibe of it. And uh, it's just one of my favorite songs and one of my go to songs. Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay. Cause I've had nothing to live for, and look like nothing's gonna come my way. So I'm just gonna sit 
on the dock of the bay. I just feel like the South just has, especially being a minority in the South, you just have this connection to this emotional music, if that makes sense. And um, everything I do is filled with such emotion, or I try to get, try to pull out of artists emotion and a gravity of like, a gravity vibe, if that makes sense. <laughs> the South has so much soul in everything we do from cooking to how we interact with people. Um, I just try to keep that soul alive in the music that I produce and write, no matter the genre. And the next song I want to talk about is Precious Lord by Thomas Dorsey. Um, this song is special to me because it's something that we often sing in a church and it, it reminds me of home and it always keeps me connected to my spiritual core. All right, let's go. Delicious Lord. I love your name. When I look back from whence I came. Sometimes stumbling. Precious Lord, take my hand. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just one of those songs that I never get tired of. Friends and loved ones, I love so dear. My brother used to sing it all the time, and my grandmother, God rest her soul, would love to hear him sing this song. And um, it just reminds me of home. Take my hand, precious Lord, and That's producer and composer David Harris from Manchester, Georgia. If you have a song or artist you'd like to nominate for our Georgia playlist, connect with us in our Facebook group. It's GPB's On Second Thought. For more Georgia playlists, visit gpbnews.org. Coming up, a new documentary about a hidden figure in Atlanta's soul music scene. The life of Lee Moses and his music after the break. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Got that wheel to learn. Gonna be a star one day. 
That is Lee Moses singing Got That Will. It's from his album Time and Place, released in 1971. You may not be familiar with his name, but maybe heard his music. He performed with the likes of James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, and Gladys Knight. Despite his will and his talent, Lee Moses' own career never really took off. His memory and the Atlanta soul scene where he was known has faded. A new documentary hopes to change that. Simon David is a Swiss-American filmmaker and the man behind the documentary In Progress. It's also called Time and Place, and he's joining me now in the studio. Hello, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Also here is Doris Moses, looking really much better than anyone should at this hour in the morning. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Simon, I want to start with you on a little background on Lee. Raised in Atlanta, one of eight siblings. He went to Booker T. Washington High and taught taught himself to play multiple instruments and to read music. Was the rest of his family musical? Yeah, actually, um, he came from a family of eight siblings. And all of them kind of played music together and would go to church every Sunday and would sing the gospel and... Lee had a father uh, named Joseph Moses who used to be in the military and would play music over there. And that's what Donya Moses, uh, Lee's sister, was telling me about maybe where that came from. But the most important thing is the church background. They would do, and even when Lee would play music during his big time here in Atlanta and even in New York, he would do a lot of gospel. He would sometimes do about 30 minutes of gospel. So, yeah, it's a very important background, the music. And, you know, all the most of the music genres come from gospel. Especially R&B, rock and roll, that kind of music. Well, yeah. here is his longtime friend, Reverend Donald High, talking about his soulful voice. Lee had a sound that was just, just so unique. He had that, that growl and gruff rough, that ugly gravel sound. He, he had that old country preacher sound, you know. And uh, as a matter of fact, he loved gospel. Well, Doris, I'm wondering, your husband, Lee, you met him later in life, but what did he tell you about the origins growing up singing in church? Well, he was, during that time, we all had to go to church. <laughs> If you were sick, you had to go to church. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, his mother, Elise, all of them, I didn't know their father because when I met Lee, his father had passed. But um, they said they lived in church, Mm -hmm. so I I didn't know that much about him. And all the time um, we were in school, I went to Archer, and he went to... um, Booker T. T. Washington, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I didn't know him then. Mm. And I only met Lee, um, I can't remember the year that I met him in now. It's been quite some time ago. Well, by that time, he had cut his teeth in the music clubs of Atlanta. Yes. Uh, He traveled between Atlanta and New York, recorded as a regular session musician with other Atlanta natives. Johnny yeah. Brantley, musician Herman Hitson, all recorded with Jimi Hendrix. What did you find out about that time of his life, Simon? Well, to correct you, uh, Johnny Brantley was his producer, mm-hmm. actually. And so he spent a lot of time in New York, and that's where he did most of his recording. And, yeah, so one of his most famous songs, Bad Girl. What I can say about Lee's music is that it's more than 
only soul. It's got this psychedelic and very rock and roll kind of uh, feeling. And what I understood also doing this and making this documentary is that Lee's music is, um, yeah, it's it's got this very rock and roll vibe. And, and he was maybe not on the right market. And that's why maybe also he never made it out there. Mm. Being on a soul scene wasn't necessarily the right place to be for him. He was the only one of the only black African musicians with Jimi Hendrix, of course, to play such a psychedelic and rock and roll genre. Well, here's his sister from the documentary that you're working on. Donya is her name. She says Gladys Knight and the Pips wanted Lee to be their guitar player, turned him down. But here she is talking about the time he opened for James Brown. He took me with him when he played with James Brown. And I remember we were sitting at the table, James Brown told him, that's the last time you ever coming out before me. He said, man, you killed it. You left me with having to pick up the pieces because you just killed it. Well, James Brown was not a man that took well <laughs> to being in second place. Doris, you know, how did Lee talk about this part of his life, playing with these unbelievable musicians? Oh, it, he used to talk about all of the. I cannot tell you half of the musicians that he used to tell me about because half of them I've forgotten their names. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember about Gladys Knight. I also remember about James Brown. And um, uh, I want to think, I can't think of the other uh, musicians. There was B.B. King also. He you played a, with B.B. King? Yes, B.B. Uh-huh. King. A huge show at the Royal Peacock. Mm-hmm. It was two massive guys on stage with lots of papa also who was another musician from that era well yeah and you're talking about an atlanta that had this you know deep soul music scene there was a you know whole southern soul circuit the sort of bobby boo bland little willie john you know these great performers that were pretty much regional uh some of them did have national hits and, and lee was making records of his own, and then put out that 1971 album, Time and Place. You said that he didn't, he maybe was too psychedelic, he was too out there for that time. But let's just hear a couple, uh, a a little of some of his music. He did a number of covers in his career, Day Tripper by the Beatles, uh, Hey Joe, the Jimi Hendrix song. And the album also has a deeply just yearning version of California Dreaming. Let's hear just a little bit of that. Lee Moses' version of California Dreaming. You know, it's like this syrupy pop song on some mm. level, uh, except he made it his own. Yeah. How, how, how do you, what do you think his draw was to these kind of covers? I think it's amazing how um, Lee, the songs he chose to make really reflect in some way the life he had. He made this um, 
he covered this song by James Carr called The, the Dark, Dark End, End of the, the Street. Dark End of the Street. That's a brilliant song. And he really reappropriated himself these songs. And when you hear The Dark End of the Street, it has nothing to do with the original one. And yeah, what fascinated me is also how visual these stories are, how, yeah, they tell his life and they're really visual. And a song got, like, got that will fascinated me because his will to be a star one day, well, I took it with me and wanted to, to make it come true, yeah. Mm. So how did you discover him? You're a Swiss man. Yeah. Did you grow up in Switzerland or here? Yeah, I grew up in Switzerland and spent a couple of years in Belgium. So the first thing is that Lee Moses is well more known in Europe than he is here. And I've gone through all Spotify, Apple Music, all the streaming uh, statistics. And so what interested me is how this guy was really more famous in abroad than in his home town. And so I started interesting myself in the city of Atlanta and discovered how transforming it was and how even now you can see uh, how fast it's transforming and with all the gentrification going on. And this is also what interested me is to put Lee Moses in a context of the current time and just to show how all these music scene, all these music clubs he played are gone, like Mommy's Diner, American Legion. All these clubs were in Bankhead and now Bankhead is like the center of transformation. So it really interested me to see how Lee Moses had a, complex relationship to the city of Atlanta. That's a Swiss-American filmmaker, Simon David. He's making a documentary about Atlanta soul musician Lee Moses called Time and Place. Also joining me is Doris Moses. She's the widow of Lee Moses. Doris, do you remember the first time you heard his music? Yes. I was, um, didn't know him at the time. And um, some friends and I, we all went to this club. And I can't remember the song, the name of the uh, song that he was singing. But anyway, I told someone, I said, oh, I said, he sounds just like the guy that made the, the song, this record. And they looked at me and said, he is. <laughs> my mouth flew open. I said, oh, my God. You know, I just couldn't imagine. And then um, the next time, <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, Donnie and I went to a club, and uh, when I walked in, he was playing. He broke three strings off his guitar. <laughs> that has to be a good sign. <laughs> And he did not go back on stage that night. He had on white, and I had on white and yellow. And he talked to me the whole time. He wasn't even worried about the strings to go on his guitar. He wanted to talk to me. And for a year, I believe it was, before, we were just friends I would go to the club and talk and stuff. But then I guess about two years later, he and I started dating. Mm. And then it went from there. But Lee was an amazing person. Yeah, he sounds like it. And what comes through his music is pretty amazing. Yes. But 
did he, you know, you met him after the record came out and didn't do as well or, you know, wasn't really recognized in the way that he'd hoped. Was he hopeful that his career would still yes. have a chance to pick up? Yeah. Yes, he was. You know, he has, he made one, I was telling uh, Simon about it, um, I'm going to be a star. Yeah. One day. Mm-hmm. And uh, really and truly, he, he is a star, but he should have been a star to, to, you know, where people knew him like, okay, Gladys Knight, she's a star. Right, I went right. to school with right. Gladys Knight. Mm-hmm. But she had hits, you know, she had hit after hit. She was on television. Absolutely, absolutely. But this is also a time Lee did start getting into drugs, um, Mm -hmm. and including heroin, Mm -hmm. also a diabetic, so it hit his body even harder. Doris, what was it like for you to see this man so talented um, in the throes of addiction? It was very painful. It was hurting because... um, it was not the man that I knew. It was, uh, you know, drugs, anything can take you from yourself. And it was not, he was no longer Lee. You know, so it, it was painful to see him like that. And um, with him being sick, I believe drugs contributed to that. Why do you think, Simon, this man, you you mentioned that he's much bigger in Europe, but that's true of a lot of old rhythm and blues stars, you know, where records are collected. But why do you think the memory of people like Lee, especially someone as talented as he, is fading? There's nothing really commemorating his influence. Not at all. And yeah, so my first interest was to see how um, there was very few to be seen on the internet about Lee. But when I got here, I could see all these music clubs that I've been talked about gone and there was barely any physical traces of him left. And yeah, and even in his family, um, some members hadn't been seeing each other. The memory was kind of lost in some way also. So yeah. So I got here, and it's a story that has to be told because it's a memory that has to be remembered. And, yeah, it really touched me to to see all these people coming back together to m- memorize Lee, and this is why also, we're also having this little tribute show on a Thursday at the Masquerade. Yeah, so this is a, a film. You're going to film this concert yeah. on Thursday, a yeah. tribute to Lee Moses held at the Masquerade. Yeah. Number of free. contemporary Atlanta musicians playing. Okay, so free. That's yeah, free. especially good to know. But you, you're a young white man from Europe making yeah. a documentary about this lost part of African-American culture. Yeah. An outsider. So how do you approach the subject in a way that authentically reflects a time and place, especially because it's just remembered by everybody? Yeah. Well, it's a good question, and I'm very conscious about being a white guy making a documentary about African-American culture. But I feel like I have privilege of telling these stories that um, an African-American wouldn't necessarily have. So I feel like I need to give my voice to other people's voice, and that's why I'm making this documentary. And Yeah. What is it like for you, Doris, to see your I, husband's legacy in this, in this I film? I know, I know, you know... 
I was telling someone, I'm, it's very seldom that I am lost for words. Mm -hmm. But when Simon started talking to me and stuff, I, I mean, even to now, I'm just overwhelmed. I am. I am. I'm gonna have to stop for right now because well, um, I, I do. I tear up a little, you know. Well, <laughs> it's a huge thing, uh, a huge project, and I really want to thank you for sharing those words with us, Doris. Thank you. Doris Moses. She's the widow of Lee Moses, the subject of a documentary film in progress. Simon David, the filmmaker, is with us. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. For and we us. have some details on the show at the masquerade on Thursday. And we're going to leave you with a title track from Moses's 1971 album and the namesake, the documentary about him, Time, Time and, place. and Place. Yeah, thank you.